God's word. We're going to go to Acts 17. We will jump back into Hebrews, but um, I want to take a little sideline. Uh, Acts 17. And if you've been with us for uh, a little while, you know that we did. Um, we were in Acts about three years ago or so. But don't worry, this is not a twice baked potato. It's uh, right out of the right out of the hopper. So here we are, Acts 17, um, starting in verse 16. Acts 17, verse 16, and this is God's word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of all this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, you've probably heard of a comedian called Louis C.K., and he's an actor too. And and Louis C.K. is not a Christian. Uh, He's not some friend of Christianity. Um, And uh, he's got an R-rated comedy routine at times. 
But at least one of the cool things about Louis C.K. is that he's unafraid to talk about anything. And um, Tammy and I, when we were in Chicago, we were driving around with my parents. And, you know, my dad has hearing aids and, and there's always a radio on and a TV on. And there's a lot of, you know, there's just always some kind of background talking going on that, that even befuddles the situation more. But um, as we were driving around, there was an NPR interview on. And it was, it was with Louis C.K. And, and, and so we're, I'm talking to my parents and there's this interview going on too. And, and so I was kind of distracted. I was listening to the interview and um, they asked him, why do you mention God in your routines, your comedy routines? You know, uh, it's kind of a not a Christian nation kind of an idea. And, um, you know, why, do you, why do you, are you not afraid to mention God? And, and he, he did a little bit and he said something like, you know, people go, well, I don't believe in God. Well, why don't you believe in God? Because I can't see him. You know, I'm not going to believe in something unless I can see it. And Louis C.K., who's not a Christian, uh, he says, uh, well, he goes, I haven't seen 12 Years a Slave yet, but that doesn't mean the movie doesn't exist. And uh, you didn't think that was kind of funny? I thought that was kind of funny. Um, anyway, one of the things, ladies and gentlemen, that drives atheists absolutely crazy is the way Christians, I mean, like, like hardcore atheists, like atheists who put... Um, uh, you know, ads in science magazines, you know, that, that are just, oh, reason.org, you know, that kind of a thing. One of the things that drives them crazy is when Christians or anybody with any belief system says that to not believe in God is a religion in itself. That drives atheists crazy. Um, in fact, they would say the opposite. And you can find tons of things online that pit reason versus religion. But the atheist would say, well, um, um, to not believe in a religion is to not believe in a religion. And to not believe in a God is to not believe in a God. They're saying the exact opposite. They're saying, I don't believe in any of that, so don't call it a religion unto itself. And uh, so you probably heard Christians respond to that. And uh, I don't want to do it in the in the hackneyed way Christians normally respond. Christians would normally respond by saying, well, you got to have uh, some system that governs your life or frames your life. Um, and so that's your system that governs and frames your life. And by the way, that's a much more eloquent um, and sound way than you normally even hear it. Um, but I think what we should do is take a lesson from the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul sees a people, and I know that it says that they believe in uh, an unknown God and that there are gods and idols all over the place, but basically what you're, what you're looking at here is a people who don't believe in the living God. They don't believe in the God that is uh, proclaimed in this word, all right? And so let's take a lesson from the, uh, the Apostle Paul and see how he deals with uh, people in this world. So our main idea here today is that God is knowable and everybody needs to know him. And I'll tell you, um, you know, I didn't go into the ministry until I was 34. Um, so I didn't just pop out of college and then pop out of seminary and let's go. You know, I, I was 34 and uh, I gained some life experience and I was already a little bit callous and uh, I'd witnessed a lot of church and, and stuff. And, and so here I am in the ministry, 34 years old. Now I'm 45 and um, I'm just kidding you. But uh, uh, what? Yeah, really. <laughs> uh, but so my attitude is not, we got to get Christian numbers up. I don't care anything at all about getting the Christian numbers up. Uh, so our team is bigger than some other team. 
That's the last thing in the world I give any, any care about. Um, along with the glory that is due God exclusively, I do care about that. You know, idolatry robs God of glory. If your affection is anywhere but where it's supposed to be, it robs God of glory. I do care about that. But I also care about a world that is hurting. I'm interested in the deep ache that is felt by all mankind. I think that's what the apostle Paul cares about too. Of course he cares about the glory of the glory of God, but he cares about the deep ache that every person feels. We all are grappling with answers to ultimate and final questions, all of us. Death awaits all of us. Uh, meaning is something that we all search for. I think the apostle Paul feels that. So let's go to our first point. All souls yearn for answers and meaning. All right, look at verse 16, if you would. It says, Paul was waiting for them at Athens. Well, who was he waiting for? He was waiting for Silas and Timothy. And uh, the place where they came from was a place called Berea. Uh, They were very well received there, but they were not well received at the previous place. Um, And so some dudes from the previous place, some dudes from Thessalonica, follow them to Berea, stir up trouble, and uh, it it, it gets uh, hot enough, uh, dangerous enough, where Paul's handlers say, hey, get the heck out of here. And uh, they send him on a 200, 250-mile journey or so, maybe by boat, but probably on foot um, along the coastline. And uh, he shows up here in Athens. And while Paul is waiting for uh, Silas and Timothy to come along with him, okay, so they've got the journey to make too, he's scoping out Athens. He's doing what you would do, which is a look around the place and see what they got. And he's observing and he sees that there are idols all over the place. And uh, it says in verse 16 that while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Now that word provoked, some of you have different words in your Bible translation. Some of you have, uh, if you have an NIV, he was greatly distressed. If you've got a King James Version, he was, uh, his spirit was stirred. Um, another translation says his spirit, I like this one, his spirit was painfully excited. And that's probably a good take on it. The idea is that of agitation. His spirit was agitated inside of him. And, but don't think that Paul was like stomping around all huffy and jerky. Oh, you know, like one of these ticked off Christians. You ever seen the ticked off Christian? Where they're like mad all the time? They're mad about the gospel. Don't you want this gospel message? Uh, I don't know. You seem kind of ticked off. I am ticked off. Hey, that, that's not Paul. He's not stomping around all in huffy. He's, he's provoked in his spirit. He's, uh, he's painfully excited. There's this real sense of burden, uh, this real sense of grief and urgency for both God's glory, because idols rob God of glory, but also the misdirection of people's belief systems. Uh, another translation in the Jerusalem Bible puts it this way. His whole soul was revolted at the sight of a city given over to idolatry. Well, Athens. Athens uh, was the first democracy in human history. Democracy can be traced back to Athens in the 6th century BC. Um, Progressive place. It had been home to Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. Uh, It was the intellectual center of the world, this place. And at the time of this account, there were probably ten to 12,000 people in the city. And it is reported that there were 30,000 idols peppered all over the city that, was, that were built into their architecture, their infrastructure, um, their thoroughfares, and all that. 
And uh, so Athens was past its former glory, but it was still a very important place. It was still exceptional in its culture, uh, its architecture, its literature, uh, its academic excellence, and, and all that. So it's, it's the centerpiece of thought in the civilized world, Athens. And so Paul is walking around observing. And uh, it says, of course, in verse 16, that his spirit was provoked in him. And so in verse 17, he, he takes some actions. It says, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Um, uh, is Dennis right in here? All right, well, David, we went to Cuba. Uh, we went to Cuba on a mission trip, but I went to Cuba on a previous mission trip. And, and the mission trip we went on, it was a little more laid back. Uh, it was like, hey, Americans, it's good to see you. Ha, ha, ha. But the one we went on like six years earlier was more like James Bond, where they were, they were holding our luggage. And, you know, it was a little spookier and scary and stuff. You know, now it's kind of chill. But uh, uh, I remember meeting this guy. You, you fly to Miami, and uh, you got to have a special humanitarian license. And so you fly to Miami and you spend the night right there by the, in the hotel because you got to be downstairs at like 4.30 in the morning, some horrible hour uh, to get, it takes a long time to get processed and everything. So I, we meet this guy, this tall dude, kind of tall, funky dude by himself in the lobby. He's like, hey, I'm going to Cuba. You guys going to Cuba? Yeah, okay, blah, blah, blah. So we get on the plane and we fly to Cuba and the plane is full of like characters, uh, there's a guy in a safari coat with leather elbows and there's a guy with an eye patch and there's a short lady holding a chicken. You know, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's a 747, but it, it feels like a Malaysian uh, plane kind of a thing where you're like, okay, I hope this thing stays in the air. So anyway, we fly to Cuba, we land, we spend the night. The next day we run into this guy on the street in Havana and uh, he's holding a cigar and uh, he goes, man, I got a hand rolled right here. And he's got this little guy that he's hired to, to sp- translate for him. And we're like, hi, we're with the church. And we're here on a mission trip to meet Pastor Manuel. And uh, he's like, oh, I'm just walking around Havana talking to people. And I got my guy here. You know, it was like, uh, it was very like uh, Hemingway-ish, you know. It was like, uh, you know, hasisaki, uh, bueno, uh, that kind of a thing going on. He's just going to walk around the streets and talk to people. And I remember, this is like, I don't know, this is like nine years ago. I remember thinking, you big fat phony, we're here on a church trip and uh, we're here to build, you know, a floor and then uh, get some preaching opportunities, hopefully. And uh, you're just going to walk around the city. And uh, I I want you to know, as I was preparing this, I was very convicted because I'm like, here this joker's gone down to a communist country. And this is back when Castro was in power and it was still kind of scary and you could get locked up for what he was doing. Uh, and he's got some hired translator and he's walking around with a cigar going, hey, how you doing? Have you heard of Jesus Christ? You know, uh, I, I, that seems to be what the apostle Paul was doing. He's there waiting on people and he's just in the public square and hi, where are you from? Well, I'm from here. And he just engages people and that's his evangelism. Uh, Maybe that guy in Cuba was doing a great thing. (laughs) I felt very convicted by that. Well, a couple applications about Paul and his method here. You notice that in verse 17, it says, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. We can take an application from that. You know why? Because that was the way Paul operated. Yes, there's a needy surrounding world. There is. 
But Paul's mode of operation in city after city after city was to go to the synagogue first. You know why he was going to the synagogue? Because that was the church. It's not like there was a Unitarian church down the street. People were Jewish, and he would go to the synagogue where the the devout people, the believers were. And that's a principle, too. Um, It says says that he does that, too. That's his custom in chapters 9, 13, 14, 17, 18, 19. If you look at verse 2 of chapter 17 here, it says, Paul went in as was his custom. Uh, That's what he did. He went to the synagogue first. So a, a, a parallel for us could be this. If you think of the church, the bride of Christ, how important it is to the Savior, let me just tell you, your first care needs to be here. Your first care needs to be to the brethren. It is a means of grace. The church is a means of grace. I encourage you to come on a Wednesday night, not because we got to get our numbers up or it's a party or it's going to be a good time for you. It's a means of grace. You need it and people need you too. We need each other to grow up in Jesus Christ. There's there's no isolated Christianity. That doesn't exist. And so that's Paul's priority. And so I would say to you, to to put it bluntly, um, you're a sick, stunted, uh, maybe even pathetic Christian life if you're a distant Christian life. If you're distant from the church, if you're resistant to church life, if you think, oh, church again, oh, getting with God's people again, if that's you, that is not a sign of health. So that's a principle we can uh, take from the Apostle Paul. Application two uh, uh, on this point, though, is this. We are not to be cloistered from the world. If anything, it could be debated that to cloister yourself from the world is to commit a sin of omission or maybe commission, probably both, if you cloister yourself from the world. Uh, God didn't save us so that we could become monks. Uh, we are to engage the world and care about the world. And uh, you don't necessarily need to stand in, at Court Square downtown and engage the people who walk by, but... Um, we're to keep our radars on and look for points of connection uh, in our culture, all right? So you ask, well, how do we do that? Uh, How are we supposed to engage our culture? Well, I've got a few tips for you, how not to do it, and then how to do it, right? Here's how not to engage the culture. Don't engage the culture with Christianity if somebody's carrying a heavy box to their car and walking away from you. That's not the time to do it. Oh, excuse me. Uh, but which is, by the way, it's like every conversation I have in the hallway at the church. You know, it's always when I'm carrying a heavy box to my car. Hey, Jim, you got 20 minutes? Uh, no, not really. Uh, uh, but that's not, that's not how to do it. I'm saying, I say that because um, the point I'm trying to say is that you need to lovingly approach them. You, not arbitrarily. Not blindly like there's some number. They're not. They're walking away with you with a heavy box trying to put it in their car. Not the right time to tap them on the shoulder and talk about deep stuff. It's kind of self-indulgent for a Christian to do that. Here's another no. Um, If they're seemingly in a hurry or with a group of people, uh, that's not the time to accost them. I mean, if you've ever seen somebody on the street standing on a a milk crate yelling at people, uh, that's not really a very effective or loving or caring way of going about it. Would you agree? Uh, Here's another way not to do it. If they're belligerent. I mean, if somebody just is 
a loud hater of Christianity who's going to step on top of you and smother your speech with their speech or swear in your face. Um, that's what Jesus was referring to when he talks about throwing pearls before swine. He's, he's saying, don't take holy, precious things and just throw them at somebody who has absolutely vehement non-interest. All right? To flip it. Um, oh, here's a good quote for you, too. Let me, let me read it to you. Uh, this is my, uh, if they're willing to nail nails into the Savior's hand, don't offer them the Savior's hand. It's pretty good, isn't it? I thought of that last night. Um, all right, so how do you approach them? Well, here's how to approach people in this world. Um, sense when there's an open time with them. Sense it. Uh, you know I, know, I remember when I was at Terminex, there was a guy that worked for me named Freddie. And, you know, he was from New Jersey, and he kind of had this kind of way about him, and he was just real, you know, he was a real slick talker and a real, you know, bright guy. His brain worked real fast, but I noticed that he had scars on his wrists, and he obviously had tried to cut his wrists at some point. And, uh, you know, I just tucked that away. I, I didn't go, hey, I see your wrists right there. Uh, you want to talk about it? Um, but, I mean, he worked for me for like two and a half years, and um, one day, he looked emotionally upset, and some thing was going on in his life. And I was like, "Hey, Freddie, uh, you know, you want to hit the conference room for a second? Are you okay, man?" And uh, I was able to just enter into his life because I'd been a boss, but I'd been a friend. Um, I wasn't trying to push anything on him, but he he had pain in his life, and uh, I think this book has an answer to pain in people's lives. Um. So another thing, um, uh, if, friendship, if friendship allows, meet them somewhere for coffee or lunch. You know, um, really care about somebody. Don't just shout it in their face or hand them a thing, but like care about their lives. Um, you know, one of the things that uh, I heard years ago was when you don't know what to preach, preach to the hurt because there's one in every pew. You may have heard me say that before, but I've modified it. There's hurt in every seat. I mean, there's a swirling, sucking eddy of despair in every chair. Um, our, our lives go in cycles, and um, everyone goes through hard things. So, you know, preach to the hurt. Um, meet people where they are and, and befriend them. And the last thing is this. Pray for people. Uh, if there's somebody that you connect with in your life or that you're concerned about, just pray for them. Um, Lift them up to the Lord and ask God for opportunities. Ask God to open doors. Ask God to make paths straight. Um, you'll be surprised if you pray that. Uh, Lord, make people come into my path in 2015. Uh, Lord, would you just kind of open up relationships for me and uh, just open up avenues where I might explain why I'm hopeful in this great gospel. You'll be surprised. God will answer that. He'll answer it in strange ways too, like inconvenient ways where you're in a hurry and all of a sudden there's something that you got to be involved in and you go, oh, dang it. Oh, wait, that might be an answer to prayer. Um, I just encourage you to do that. Now, those applications made, there's still more on this point. So let's look at verse 17 and following. Um, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. All right. Well, some of the people who happen to be out in the marketplace hear him. And you know, they're not dummies either. 
and they know that he's not a dummy. They hear him and they're like, okay, this is some wacky shazbot this guy's saying, but he's not a dummy. I mean, he's, he's reasonable and he's articulate and uh, he's, uh, he's uh, schooled, which Paul was. And uh, so in, in the marketplace there, in verse, seven, verse 18, it says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others say, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Uh, he's preaching about Jesus and the resurrection and so on. Well, um, here's what you need to know. Epicureans and Stoics were, um, were thinkers and holders of a belief system of the day. Okay, so Epicureans followed a dude named Epicurus from several hundred years earlier, okay, the 300s and 200s uh, BC. And they basically believed, well, you know, if gods were real, uh, they certainly wouldn't bother with humans. Um, so if gods are real, they're, they're from afar and uh, not really paying attention. And so Epicureans had this kind of, this kind of Mario Batali, uh, enjoy life. Live it to the fullest and grab what you can and experience all the richness of life and blah, blah, blah. You wonder why I'm holding a cutting board. Um, the brand name on this cutting board is, you can't see it, but it's Epicurean. And Epicurean is kind of a culinary term, isn't it? I mean, if you think of somebody that's an Epicurean, it's somebody who like, uh, likes interesting things. Well, for instance, in Chicago, we went to a restaurant. I've never had skate wing before. And it was on the menu. Well, guess what? I cannot resist ordering something I've never eaten before. So I had to get the skate wing, uh, even though it wasn't that awesome. Um, but um, I get it, man. I like tasting nuances and living life and, and poking reality and, and new experiences. I mean, I, I love that kind of stuff. Uh, so yeah, Epicurean. But for them, it was this religious system. It was this, or I take the word religion out of it. It was a way of thinking about life. It's kind of like, eh, what does it matter anyway? If there's a God, he's up there, he's far away and disinterested. It's all kind of spinning out of control here. It's a short life. So, you know, just enjoy things, try to amass as much stuff as you can and uh, as much as experiences. And and that's what's going to give life meaning. That's an Epicurean. All right. The Stoics that are mentioned here are on a different side of things. Stoics followed another guy named Zeno uh, a few hundred years earlier, and they basically had a godless view of existence. And they believed that if bad stuff happened in life, that you just kind of ignore it and just push on through. So it's kind of like the British, you know, keep a stiff upper lip, uh, remain calm, carry on, uh, just ignore all the bad stuff. It's like Muslims too. I don't know why God killed my wife, uh, but you know, Allah. Uh, it's just kind of like, well, you know, yeah, this stinks, but uh, let's press on through. And so those were the Stoics. And, and you know that even that term, if somebody is described as Stoic, it's somebody who's kind of like, mm, well, oh, well, I'm just going to kind of bear it. Those were two frameworks for living. Now, in, in, in our world, <laughs> those, those frameworks still exist. Uh, the Epicureans are the YOLO people, you know? Ugh. YOLO. <laughs> and uh, you know what that means, right? You only live once. Schlitz. Okay, different, different era. The Schlitz, it's the Schlitz mindset. Um, all right. And then uh, the Stoics are, uh, you know, the, the blank happens bumper sticker people. Those are the Stoics. So those, are, those two systems are still operating uh, in our society. 
Well, these two groups check him out in the open marketplace, and they call him a babbler. Um, literally, that word means seed picker. It's a, a bird that just kind of picks seed out of the dirt or gutter snipe. If you've ever seen My Fair later, Lady, you know, when you pick food out of the gutter or food out of a trash can, a gutter snipe. Um, and so they're like, this dude's just kind of like piecing together a bunch of like uh, philosophical stuff and what's he even talking about? And, but they're, they're interested in, in the way he delivers it. And so they get him, they gather him up and they bring him to this place called the Areopagus. And the Areopagus uh, literally means um, Mars Hill. And so if you remember, if you remember Mars Hill Church, uh, that's, what, uh, that's where they get that from. It was kind of a high court. That's where Socrates was brought and condemned to death. But that's where people would gather and think and discuss and talk about new ideas. They really love that. And so to continue on our next point, the gospel starts with God himself. So here Paul is. He's at the Areopagus, which is a place, but it's really more a council. It's really more a gathering of people who like ideas and like thinking and like processing and like considering big, giant questions. So he's brought in the midst of these people, and it's this place called Mars Hill. Um, and so what does he do? Well, he finds a point of connection, and that's, that's a lesson we can take. He finds a point of connection. It says, verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along uh, and observed the objects of your worship. I followed an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. So isn't it cool? He finds a point of connection. He doesn't get up there with a sign and yell at them and say, you stupid idiots, I can't believe when someone's in the hospital, how can you do it without God? That's not what he says. He finds a point of connection. He says, hey, listen, I see that uh, you like thinking about deep stuff. Uh, you like uh, considering why you're here and how you got here and maybe how the universe was made and stuff like that. Well, I'm going to tell you. And here's where he starts. And I love this. And by the way, this, this is not my notes, but you know, liberal scholarship criticizes Paul. They're like, this is kind of like a crappy sermon, Paul. This is like just a, a model kind of sermon and maybe not maybe a lesson on how not to do it because you don't really talk about specifics about the cross of Jesus Christ and you don't make them sit pray a sinner's prayer and uh, what are you doing here well man he's finding them where they are look what he talks about he says the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples by men or by human hands what's he doing you'll see He's simply stating what God is like. The gospel starts with God himself. What does it mean when he says, the God who made the world? What is that? That's God as creator. He's going, hey, men of Athens, I got some news for you. He doesn't go right to the cross of Christ. He says, you know what? There's a God. He made everything. He's a creator. That means he's got a lot, all the power. That means he's got all the science too, the omni-science. That's a good place to start. He goes on. Um, he's Lord of heaven. Okay, that means he's ruler. If he's creator, then he's the boss of you. I mean, if he made you, then he's got a right to say how you're supposed to live. And it goes on. Uh, He says he's not served by human hands. Oh, that means he's self-sustaining. It goes on to say, uh, uh, 
he himself gives all to mankind. Um, he sustains us. Um, it says in verse 26, he made from one man nations of mankind uh, to live on the face of all the, uh, the earth. That means he's purposeful. He's active. He's involved in his creation. He's not far away simply. He's close in his creation. In fact, um, it goes on to say, um, yeah, uh, end of verse 27, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. What is that? That's his imminence. That is, that is God presently with what he's made. It goes on to say in verse 29, being then God's offspring. Oh, this is kind of cool too. He, he quotes a, a couple of their, uh, their, their own poets. Uh, I got the names here. It, it, they're, you know, I, it, a couple different poets, one from the 6th century, one from the 3rd century. But he, but he quotes their poets. And he says, hey, uh, I know the stuff that you read. I know the little, uh, the, the things that are uh, akin to your culture. Well, since, since uh, some of your, uh, even your poets say we're, we're God's offspring, uh, we ought not think to the divine images like gold or silver or stone. Uh, he speaks of God, the creator, the, the originator of life. And he goes on to talk about uh, how times of ignorance God overlooked. That's God's mercy. Uh, now, um, God commands us to repent because the world's going to be judged and not just judged, but judged in righteousness. So you've got ju- God as judge. You've got God as judging in righteousness. It's attribute after attribute after attribute. Basically, he stands up and says, hey, men of Athens, here's what God's like. That's a good lesson, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, that's, a, that's a good way to think about approaching other people. Um, when, so here's, a how, here's a how-to. When in doubt of what to say or what to pray, go to what God is like. Go to the attributes of God. And you may even want to just jot down a few Bible verses and keep them in your wallet or your purse that, uh, that, has to, has to, that, that speak to what God's like. Or you could just remember Acts 17. Somebody says, man, what do you believe in that wacky Protestant church you go to? I mean, what goes on in there? You sing songs or you, you give you know, back rubs in a line or what do, you, what do you do over there on a Sunday? You can say, well, we think about these things and then tell them what God is like. It's a great way to start uh, talking about the gospel. That's what Paul did. All right, last point. There is no neutral response to Jesus Christ. You can't regard him neutrally. You look at verse 32. Um, Paul's not afraid of firing a bazooka in the town square. Um, he says, uh, uh, he says, yeah, there's going to be someone who's going to come and judge and to give us an, uh, this assurance, uh, this, this man's been raised from the dead. And at that, uh, verse 32, they, they go, <laughs> resurrection of the dead. Oh, right. Somebody, uh, you're saying that a guy died and came back to life. Right. And so uh, a lot of them mocked him. Others th- said, uh, well, you know, that's uh, wild stuff, but we'll hear you again. And yet a few believed uh, Dionysus the Apagite, a woman named Damaris, and some others with him too. Um, but you see that immediately this fragments the listening crowd. I mean, as soon as he does get to Jesus, as soon as he does get to this divine God-man who's greater than life itself, who has control over life itself, that's when it all caves in. And that's, that's the last point here, is um, it's a strange word of hope that there could be life after this life. But Paul is not afraid or ashamed or embarrassed to stake absolutely everything on that claim. That Jesus isn't some prophet who was killed a long time ago, boo-hoo-hoo, like all the other dopes. But that Jesus 
is alive. Jesus was not defeated by death. Jesus was not held down by the cross. And thus Jesus paid a sin debt on that cross. He became a punished person for us who deserve punishment. Uh, That's the gospel message. Last thing I'll close with is this. Um, I've got a a funky cousin. I know we're almost out of time here. I've got a funky cousin. Uh, I've got a lot of cousins. But my funkiest cousin is named Elise. And uh, she's really smart. She looks like Annie Leibovitz, sort of. She kind of looks like a young Annie Leibovitz. Uh, She's a published author. She's got a book on architecture that was published 20 years ago or so. She makes jewelry. Uh, and she lives in a brownstone right on, on Lake Shore, right on, on the Lake Shore. And uh, she's, I think, 49 years old. And her husband, Jean Luc, was her French professor. They've been married for 20 some years, but he's 75. And um, so they're a funky couple, man. Uh, funky. And uh, Jean Luc had a heart attack about a year ago and a stroke. And we never see these people. I mean, this is the first time we've seen Elise in, what, five years or so? Um, we never see them, and they always leave early. But I was talking to Jean-Luc in the kitchen, and he is, I, he doesn't even say the word God, and she doesn't even say the word God. I mean, she's just, they're just funky and strange, and they smell like cigarettes, and uh, they're just funky. And I was talking to Jean-Luc in the kitchen, and really enjoyed it, really had a good conversation with him. But, you know, he was talking about having a stroke. And uh, he had to, it's funny, he's, friend, he's bilingual. He lost his English. He retained his French, lost his English, had to learn the, the calendar dates again and, and what a dime was worth and, and, and stuff. And he said he felt like a baby and he had to learn to work a doorknob again. And, um, but he used the word anguish. And it still just rings in my head. He said, you know, with his accent, his French accent, he said, he said it was just anguish. And I said, well, it's interesting you use the word anguish. You didn't say that it was hard or it was challenging or a big challenge or whatever. You said anguish. And he said, he said, I sank to the lowest depths of humanity. And uh, anyway, it wasn't long after that, that they whisked out the door and I wasn't able to continue a conversation. But I talked for about 20 minutes with him and I am just burdened for Jean-Luc like I never have been before. And I don't know when I'm going to see him again. I haven't seen him in five years. I may not see him in five more years, and, and he's 75. So what should I do? Uh, I want to pray for him. I want to pray for him. I want to remember him. I want to look for any avenue. I may even write him a letter. I, I, don't, know, I don't know quite what to do, but um, I know that I'm burdened for him. And what I would suggest for you is to think about people in your sphere of influence, uh, people that you see around you, and just feel the weight of responsibility for them. Um, You know, folks, God is knowable, and everyone needs to know him. Everyone you know needs to know this God, and you have the words of life. So I, I just urge you to pray in 2015 that God will open up avenues for you of of just points of entry into people's lives, uh, that they'll feel their need and that God will orchestrate um, a way for you to really love them and really invest in them because you really do care about them. Um, Like I say, I don't care about getting numbers up. I care that people are hurting and I think that this has an answer to the hurts of this life.
So pray for those things. And the last thing I'll leave you with is this. Concerning the believers, concerning believers in your life, every one of us knows people who are on the fringe, who have kind of floated away and you wonder where they are. And honestly, they're kind of screwing up. I mean, they're not leading their family well. They're distant figures. They're on the fringe of church life. Help them. Summon them. You know, put your arm around them and say, hey, come with me. Let's us go. Um, Help the brethren uh, because they need to be close to this God too. Our Father, um, I just pray that what is true would cling to us. And if there's any, been any vain babbling from me, I just pray that you'll kill it. Um, we know that this is a, a shattered world and there are people hurting all around us. And, and uh, we, just, we just thank you for loving us and thank you for caring about your creation and for being personally involved. And we thank you for the Savior who allows us to approach you like this. And We pray, Lord, that your spirit would move and help us align with lives who need the Savior. We thank you for him and we pray in his name. Amen. Thanks, y'all.